So you've got to be quite strict with yourself, but also trust in your kind of gut instincts. So when you're planning research experiments, don't be afraid of it. Just go and do it and and try that side project. Every week, every day, there are discoveries that will shape our future. The Research Beat, brought to you by Audemic, speaks to the unsung heroes of groundbreaking research and those laying the foundations for the advances of tomorrow. Why? Because we believe the more we discover, the more we connect the dots, the more we push our understanding of the world forward. This week on The Research Beat, we speak to Vicky Rand, Professor in Biosciences at Teesside University. So we're here today with Vicky Rand, Professor in Biosciences at Teesside University. Hi Vicky. Hi, great to meet Hi. you. So let us know a little bit about your work uh, and also it'd be really good to know what is the Human Genome Project. Could you give us a, an overview? Yeah, so my work is focusing around looking at kind of what goes wrong in cancer cells. Um, the Human Genome Project was a really big international project, a massive collaboration across multiple countries and different sites. Cost an absolute fortune, $3 billion is the estimate, but did come under budget and under time over 15 years. I and mean, this was really kind of picking apart our DNA and trying to work out kind of what a normal DNA looks like so that when we look at cancer and other, other diseases, um, we can try spot the difference and kind of identify what goes wrong and then we can try, try and target that with new drugs. What was the ultimate conclusion of the project? Yeah, so the ultimate conclusion was that we have freely available data, which is used across um, the globe on lots of different science and research projects. It's used by pharmaceutical companies, it's used by other industry to identify how we can kind of make people better, um, so improving the health and, and life of people and new drugs, new treatments, new ways of manufacturing. Uh, with the technology, the cost has come down considerably. Um, probably my PhD could be done in a, a week now, <laughs> which is quite... <laughs> But yeah, the cost has come down, the time, um, there's a publication last week about the, the first, the fastest genome um, to be sequenced was about five hours and two minutes. And this was from, from the clinic, from the patient to kind of get the diagnosis, to kind of feed that back to the clinic, to make those clinical decisions about how that patient's treatment would be, would be um, impact, impacted. Um, we also have um, announcements from another company where it's like the 100 pound kind of genome uh Ros, it used to be the the thousand dollar genome now it's like the, the hundred dollar hundred pound genome so the costs are really coming down and that makes it much more approachable for the kind of use of the particularly the nhs and, and the various clinics so tell us about your research and, and how that fits in with the human genome project yeah so my my research has been um, looking at different cancers really aggressive cancers that um we don't know anything about and again it's from the normal genome unpicking the kind of cancer genome so worked in the States on a tumour called glioblastoma, which is a really aggressive brain tumour. And often these tumours appear and you don't know you've had it and it's the size of a cricket ball. And at that point you have seizures and that's kind of when you go and have surgery. And there's still a lot of work to be done to identify how we treat those patients. But by the work that we've been doing, it's really unpicking and going, actually, this is what's going wrong. So then we can identify how we can kind of target that and go into kind of clinical trials and looking at different drugs. And I've done a similar approach on other areas. So blood cancers, um, leukemia and um, pediatric leukemia in particular. And there's been significant advances over the last 30 to 40 years in terms of outcome for kids with, with their leukemia. But again, there's different subtypes just because we call it leukemia. It doesn't mean it all looks the same and it's not all the same things that go wrong. So it's identifying the kind of the ones that still aren't responding to treatments 
what is going wrong in those cells and how can we target that and how can we identify them. My current research in lymphoma is looking at lymphoma, a particular type of lymphoma, which is uh, the most common cancer in sub-Saharan Africa. And it's a real problem because the, obviously the care and what's available in terms of treatment is not the same as available, um, particularly across on the NHS. So it's trying to look at the disease in a country like the UK, but also in other countries to see what the similarities are and also what the differences are. So we can kind of really tailor and personalise the treatment. What's your process for doing that research and, and also making sure that it has that impact? So the process is basically teamwork. So science can't be done alone and you've got to buy the team. That's what the Human Genome Project taught me. I mean, that was a massive global effort with um, very significant pay- players and a lot, of, a lot of politics involved as well, and actually including Tony Blair and Bill Clinton. But in terms of kind of my research, it is it's getting the right team together. So it's the right clinical team. So the people who are actually treating the patients to ask them what the key pain points are and what the key pressures are. So rather than a scientist going in, oh, we've got this really cool toy, we can do all this amazing science. It's trying to understand what the real question is that we need to ask. And it's, it's having that clinical team, the, the full healthcare, so working with the nurses to collect the, the right data that we need to look at um, what happens to the patient. Do they respond to treatment straight away? Do they need more? What are the side effects? What happens along their kind of like their journey? And also the scientists in the lab. So people who have the green fingers and who would actually be able to probably do my PhD in less than a week to kind of these projects. It's also being part of international networks. So I'm part of European networks and also globally and part of a scientific organising committee which is international this year it's in New York so I get to take Teesside University to to Times Square and shout about the exciting work that we're doing there. Uh, So what's one thing you wish you known before you started this research? I think it is that the team side of it because I think as you as you do your degree you're kind of really focused on kind of getting your degree getting that kind of that degree fit completed and it's very kind of insular work but when you do your PhD again you're on a very specific small project which is actually quite a huge project and it's quite a significant project but you need to really develop start developing your network there and then so kind of start talking to other people so you can kind of get a bigger picture of what's going on in the world and not be afraid. I think you kind of, as a, as a new student and doing your research and kind of being at PhD level, you're often quite intimidated by the professors at universities and also particularly at um, conferences and even just pinging an email to ask a question. Um, don't be scared. Don't be, don't be shy. Um, go, just go and talk to people, get to know them. They're really excited by excited people. If you have a shared passion in omics, then definitely come and talk to me and uh, we can build some nice, exciting projects together. What initially inspired you to do this research? Really like biology. I think it was kind of all the, all the way through school. I really liked biology. I mean, it was really genetics that I really enjoyed. I can't really pinpoint exactly where it was. I mean, my record of achievements, which are probably too young to have had one of those, during my GCSEs and sixth form at school was basically my, my, my goal was to be a cancer researcher in America in 10 years time. And that's exactly what I ended up doing. So it was obviously a passion from very early on. I just really enjoyed the subject. I think that's really important. Again, it's it's doing something because you enjoy it and you develop that kind of team and network around it to support you. So whether you see with this particular research, you know, obviously you can't predict, but in the next five to 10, 15 years, where can you actually see it going based on the data that you've seen so far? So in the lymphoma work that we're doing, it's really getting kinder treatment. So the treatment in the UK is very toxic and has a lot of side effects, but it's very effective. And over 90 plus percent of kids um, are fine. Um, but it's a six month period when they're in hospital intensive care. So it's trying to identify how we can personalise it to 
not disrupt the family unit because obviously they're, they're away from their siblings, they're away from their friends, but also kind of still have that amazing um, outcome and survival. But it's also levelling up. I mean, it's, it's part of the government agenda to talk about levelling up, but it is levelling up across the globe. So making healthcare, making drugs um, affordable and available to everybody so that everybody, no matter where they live and what their upbringing is and their environment, they have the opportunity to, to have the best treatments. Those advances in lymphoma, would they be then applicable to other types of cancers in other areas? Would it be applicable to cancer research? Because it seems like what you've focused on is not just, of course, the treatment and, and getting better, but actually the holistic effect and the well-being effect it has on the patient in some way. Yeah, no, no, that's a great, great question. So, yes, so the the work that I'm doing in terms of kind of lymphoma is applicable across multiple different cancers. I mean, from a biology point of view, with the marker we identified is quite a common marker across other cancer types. But the biology of it is really complicated. But by adding that biology to the field helps other areas as well. But also in terms of the model and that approach, that holistic approach, the teamwork, the getting the right people together, asking the right questions is basically applicable elsewhere. And that's kind of with my other hat on. So I'm now the interim director of the National Horizon Centre, which is a fantastic investment by Teesside University, which is to work with partners. So across industry um, and also healthcare to really kind of address the needs of well, both to improve treatment and opportunities and availability of drugs worldwide. So it's kind of applying that model and we're working with fantastic teams in respiratory medicine. So working on lung cancer, and we've got a PhD student advertised at the moment to come and do that. And it's using the same approach. It's working with those clinicians and saying, what is the pain point? What do we need to do? And it's all about in their area is the early detection. So they get people come in, they have a, a shadow on their lungs when they scan them. But because it's so small, the current technology available on that clinical diagnostic side is not sensitive enough. But as researchers, I can take those approaches that I've previously used on the new technology and kind of try, try it, basically do the experiments. Can we actually tweak these protocols? And then could we translate that to the clinic? And with that partnership with companies, we can work with them to develop their technology and develop those protocols. So we could actually have a commercial product which could be used in the clinics and also globally. And what would, what would that commercial product exactly be? It can be a panel, which uh, means probably needs nothing to you in terms of that, but it's basically taking a certain gene set. So genes that in your DNA uh, or particular bits of your DNA that we know are changed and then we can make that into basically a more smaller affordable test so a bit like the lateral flow test I mean you've all heard of your PCR test and the, the viruses have been sequenced and we're using kind of PCR to detect bits of the virus and, and our response in our immune system and it's using something like that so ideally we want something which is we could either do at home ourselves to prevent cancer or monitor things or we can actually use in the clinic so it's just some, a small device which is cheaper and easier to produce on mass. One, two, three, four. The Research Beat is brought to you by the Audemic app, a platform for students and researchers which allows you to listen to academic articles and take notes easily. On the go and simple to share. What advice, you, you mentioned there's a PhD position at the moment, what advice would you give someone wanting to pursue research in this field? Follow your passion. So if you, if you read something and you're excited about it, don't read it and then go, oh, but I'm not qualified to do that. Ask questions, contact the people, um, have the discussions, show your passion for what you like doing. Um, for example, I've got a PhD student who came to me do, to do a master's project originally and had a real passion for a particular virus, which is associated with one of the cancers that I work with. And because that passion shone through, 
he was an ideal candidate to kind of take on that PhD in lymphoma and, to, and he's the one who's really pushed the work to identify this new biomarker. So it's again, it's, it's, it's just follow your, follow your passion, identify kind of what you're really interested in and don't expect a, a smooth path because there is no, there's no one path for everybody's career. You don't just do your degree, your master's, your PhD, your X, Y, Z after that. Everybody has a different journey. You can come into different stages. I've got a new PhD student, for example, who's um, been in the Navy for many years and then done her degree at Teesside and now doing a PhD with me looking at bone cancers. Um, so at any stage of your career, there's opportunities. And this is something that Teesside is really good at and also through the National Horizon Centre. Every stage of career. So it's people from executive leaders in the field being trained on new technology, new approaches. We work a lot with local companies like Fuji and CPI who do a lot of biomanufacturing and are manufacturing the vaccines and developing an RNA centre of excellence. So for future RNA vaccines, in which also relates to uh, cancers as well. But all the way yeah, all the way through your career. So if you're a school leaver, um, looking to trying to identify what you like to do there's different approaches to kind of support and develop ideas and and explore things all the way through to well whatever you want to be really what uh, if i need more what question should i ask you really hard questions what question should you ask me the one i always get asked is kind of will will cancer be cured that's always a hard question do you want to ask a hard question <laughs> that's a good question well i'm going to ask it will cancer be cured I think cancer, there will be, it'll be managed. It'll be very similar to heart disease. And I think in our lifetime, there will, the survival rates will improve. So as you can see from the Cancer Research UK adverts, I mean, one in two of us will get cancer, but the survival rates of getting cancer are really good in some areas. And it's kind of just getting that across the board of different, different types. So I think it's not cured, but I think it will be managed. And I think a lot of that will be about early detection and, and monitoring kind of our, our, for ourselves. If you had 10 million to spend on a research area, what would you spend it on? I think it's around that levelling up. So it's about creating opportunities for people, particularly across the northeast of England, which has a lot of health issues which need a lot of attention. And it's bringing together the right teams. So to address them, it's bringing opportunities for kind of new enthusiastic science as well as public health experts to kind of really identify those projects and really really build them and it's bringing in our other links so it's the NHS but also bringing in that bio industry side of it so the people who are actually manufacturing the drugs and knowing at every point from what happens in the initial diagnostics where those pain points are kind of what the big kind of key areas are across specific regions, particularly deprived regions that don't that need a bit more injection, but all the way through to who's actually manufacturing the drugs that we then get when we go to the clinic. So it's that whole life cycle and I'd like to invest in a in a kind of real hub and academy to to kind of bring all those elements together. Because a lot of them are done in silos. So the cancer research done doesn't necessarily speak to the people who are actually making the drugs and there's a lot a lot that happens in between and it's, and it's spending that money to kind of really bring that ecosystem together that's really interesting and then could you tell us a little bit more about north the northeast and how things differ there and just elaborate on the fact that you mentioned so things like the, the project with lung cancer is a much higher rate than it is across particularly kind of areas of London and the southeast. And this is because of heavy smoking and a tradition of heavy smoking from multiple generations. And this is where that early detection happens because the number of cases that are presenting that we have to watch and wait until it's a certain size um, to be able to say that it's cancer, it's not cancer, is really important. And it's trying to bring those numbers, um, again, levelling up to bring those numbers into, into line with, with other areas. It's really interesting that because most people 
of people we've spoken to previously kind of come onto the podcast and their answer to that question is to kind of focus on a specific thing and for example we had someone the other day who was kind of like a sports scientist and he would spend that 10 million on just working with a couple of sprinters and figuring out like this and this you know very very specific whereas your question uh, your answer to this is to kind of bring existing silos and those existing areas together in somewhere to make them more efficient which yeah. is not something you hear often and it's really interesting because i think people are generally quite adverse to that because it in some ways it can mean more bureaucracy and things like that but actually for, in this particular case you know you've i think you've explained well that it could be very efficient and maybe i don't know could the, could the benefits of such research and, and such a system here in the uk then spread out to leveling up internationally as well in some way yeah, and I think it's bringing those those areas together, and that's what we are doing at National Horizon Centre. So we've got great collaborations across the bio industry, and working with one particular company, Cytiva, who can basically build manufacturing units in across in any country. It's kind of a modular design. It's quite quite great, quite funky to see actually. Like within two years, a vaccine manufacturing hub can be can be built. And we're discussing with the Department of National Trade about how we can join with that because we can develop the training part of it. So we've got, we're a university, we've got a lot of academics who really have expertise, but also we have a training team for what we call CPD, Continued Professional Development, and they have a real focus on that area. So we're discussing how we can kind of put those manufacturing facilities into countries that don't have the capabilities, but also that means they also don't have that workforce. So it's getting that workforce to kind of come to us, so train the trainer, so kind of train the people who can then continue to train the workforce, but also that initial workforce, they can come to us uh, and we can kind of train them up so that they can go straight in and kind of use that manufacturing. So that's kind of one side of it. And again, it's from the the NHS and the medicine side of it. Some previous work I've done with the hospital is basically communicating the research that we're doing. And there's a lot of work between clinicians and also scientists across other universities across the world, just sharing expertise because people have got a lot to offer. We have and and our partners have. So we learn from them and they learn from us and we develop part of that teamwork. I think it it all comes down to that kind of being part of the Human Genome Project where you just had so many, yes, it was probably a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of a lot of politics. There's some great books about the backstory of it all. But it's kind of that teamwork. And if you can make it work effectively, then you can do some pretty amazing things. Last couple of questions. How do you manage your time as a researcher? <laughs> I'm just going to laugh at that one. <laughs> I don't. I'm going to catch a train in a minute to London. So I think the time as a researcher, it's really being, it, it, takes, it takes time. You've got to kind of be quite strict with your diary at times because research is hard. And my my new job now, I do a lot of other things, a lot of kind of uh, meeting people, lots of meetings, lots of discussions, lots of strategy, a lot of administration side of things, a lot of managing people. But the research part, it is quite hard. And in previous times with with teaching loads and things like that, people do struggle to kind of protect the time. Because research, you need to be creative. You need to think outside the box. There's no... It's never an easy answer. And every time, every question you ask, get about another 20 comes to you. And there's a lot of reading to do and a lot of development. So you've got to be quite strict with yourself, but also trust in your kind of gut instincts. So when you're planning research experiments, don't be afraid of it. Just go and do it and and try that side project to see to see what happens. So in terms of managing time, it's it's just really trying to block out time in your diary. Um, and also when you're in that creative mood, really optimising it, because there's times when you you can write amazing science, there's other times when you just stare at a blank screen where you should be doing something more effective. <laughs> I think it's pretty good advice. Not bad advice <laughs> to me as well. I spend a little bit of time 
blank screen staring. <laughs> oh, I do that, yeah. Go for a walk. <laughs> go go, go, yeah. go and talk to somebody. Get, that's why I do, go and talk to the PhD students to be inspired by them. <laughs> and also yeah. the, go and see what people are doing in the labs. There's some really cool stuff. And talk to the company. We have Fujifilm in the office next door to me. Um, go and talk to them about kind of what, what's happening in industry and their developments in the future. And, and that kind of like creative spark kind of rubs off. And you go mm. back, and that, that that blank page just fill up quickly. So, if our if our listeners are more in, uh, are interested in learning more about your work or, or work in the field, where could they best connect with you online? And would you share any recommendations for resources where they could find out find out more? Yeah, I mean, from the research angle, Twitter is an amazing resource. It gets a bad press at times, but basically, if you focus on the research and the people who are doing that research and connecting with them, you kind of get to know people online and actually takes away a little bit of intimidation at conferences as well so I'm on Twitter and so please connect with me I'm also on LinkedIn um, which is more business side of it but actually it's a really good way that's how I found out about the hundred dollar genome announced through the, the finances rather than the science side of it which uh, is a bit of a surprise but also follow Teesside University and all the National Horizon Centre and all the other exciting things that are going on there. Brilliant thank you thank you for your time Vicky. No problem it's great to meet you. Thank you, Vicky. For more on Vicky, you can find her on Twitter, LinkedIn, or the Teesside University website. And to listen to her academic research in full, sign up to the Ordemic waiting list at ordemic.com or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn.